seated. Several months ago, uh, I caught an article in the uh, Camelot This Week written by Warren Trendholm, and I thought, oh, that's a great article. So I sent him off an email and gave an invitation for lunch, and well, after that, I, I hooked him into preaching. It's dangerous to go to lunch with me sometimes. Anyways, Warren has served the First Baptist Church in town for over 10 years. He's on a little break right now. And it's just our privilege to uh, have him come and share from Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. So you might want to open your Bibles to Proverbs 9. And Lord bless you, Warren, as you come and share God's word with us this morning. Thank you, Pastor Harry. Hey, let's give him a warm summit drive welcome. Can we do that? Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be with you this morning. You know, I have known Pastor Harry for about, well, over 10 years now. And I remember first meeting him at a ministerial and recognizing really immediately in him the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Patience, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, power under control. And I've had a real respect for Pastor Harry over these years and kind of looked up to him. I've never told him that before, but I thought this would be a good spot to do it, and just kind of our connection, and, and just so appreciative of the work that is happening here at Summit, the Lord's work, and that you are doing his kingdom work. And as I met with Pastor Harry, I was really excited about the possibility of preaching on Proverbs 9. I had in the past preached through a good portion of Proverbs, and Proverbs 9 might have been my favorite chapter, kind of a key a chapter to the book of Proverbs, even to the scriptures, and to life itself. And so I found it very inspirational, very powerful, and I want to share a few thoughts with you this morning. The title is simply Decisions, Decisions, Decisions. And uh, there's before us going to be two houses that are metaphors in life. One is wisdom, one is folly, and we're going to look at those two here in a bit. But by way of introduction, I and I heard some of this last week, and I, I stole a little bit of it from Pastor Harry. The author is Solomon, of course, uh, some 2,800 years ago. The book was written. And uh, Solomon was well uh, endowed to be able to write the book concerning wisdom as earlier in his life he had prayed and asked God for guidance, for wisdom, to be able to be the king of Israel and recognize that without God's grace in his life, he would not be able to make right decisions, decisions with understanding to be able to execute in authority, justice, and mercy. And God honored his request. I believe he still honors that request today when we ask him for wisdom, the sons and daughters of the king of kings. And, uh, of course, with wisdom, Solomon, uh, you can read in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings some of the examples of his wisdom. It's quite profound as he practically exercises his authority. You may have already heard some of that before. I won't go into it this morning. But here he gives instruction for his son, how to live wisely in the community of faith. And of course, the grace of God, the power of God, is at the heart of it. And to be able to make right decisions. It's not enough that we know what the right decision is. We usually do, don't we? But to have the power to be able to enact that right decision. And, of course, as studying the book of Proverbs, I found it very interesting. Its context was to be lived out in the community of faith and also as a light to any peoples, the nations around that would enter into God's community 
of faith. And so that's the kind of the context of the book, to be lived out within the context of the community of faith. Now, how does that apply to us some 2,800 years later? I heard a little bit last week, just looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the New. Well, we know where the community of faith is. Has it continued on into the present time? And really, the community of faith, though Abraham was not the first person of faith in the Bible, he's often characterized as the father of the family of faith, the father of Israel, the father of that community of faith. We know of Abraham in Genesis, it says that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God imputed his righteousness to Abraham when Abraham believed God's promises. Even as today, as we believe God's promise that he is the deliverer of his people, he delivers us as well. And that community of faith continues into the present time. In fact, we read in Galatians, the apostle Paul writes, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What does it mean if you are Christ? If you have entered into the community of faith by Faith in Jesus Christ, in the work that he has done on our behalf, <clears throat> you are Abraham's seed. What does that mean, Abraham's seed? It means his prodigy, his progeny, his family, his sons and daughters, and our heirs according to the promise. Where is the community of faith today? It's found in all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Our king, the king of Israel, is our king, our lord our Savior. We have been brought into adoption, by adoption, into the family of God by faith. And God calls us today to live wisely within the community of faith as a witness to the world around us. We really, this is really introduction. We heard a lot of this last week. Not all of it, but a lot of it. So I'm borrowing. So let's take a look at Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 9 beginning at verse 1 through 6. <clears throat> Wisdom here is personified as a noble lady. Wisdom is personified as a noble lady. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. <clears throat> it says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. So we begin with this metaphor for wisdom, this house, this noble house that is built. It's constructed at great cost, it is built with industry and the scope. It's a great house with rooms for all. And you, you get a sense of that in verse 1 when it says seven pillars. One time I saw a house, a really a mansion back in New Brunswick. I saw this mansion, not a lot of mansions in New Brunswick. I don't know, I, I'm from there. And uh, I happened to see this mansion. And it had these two Greek pillars in the front. And I was pretty, you know, Wow. This is awesome. I've never seen anything like it. Great house. Can you imagine a house with its entryway with seven pillars? Seven great pillars. It speaks of a vast house. A house that is able to contain all who are invited to come. A great house. A huge house. 
And then we also see in verse 2, as we look a little further, she's prepared a feast in that house. Meat and wine are all laid out. This is an expensive meal, a great feast. A meal she has paid for that may be freely had for all takers. A meal that fully satisfies. And really, there's a metaphor here for spiritual satisfaction. We know, now bringing this forward into the New Testament just for a moment, it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, in John chapter 6, speaks uh, to the, the great crowds that are gathered around him, and he says, you must eat my blood and drink my flesh. And he's speaking of his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection. And they really think he's talking about cannibalism, and he says to them, no, no, no. It's spiritual things I'm speaking to you of. You must take me in all the way and you will have satisfaction, completeness for your soul. The purpose for which you have been created will be realized. And you can read that chapter yourself. We see that this great meal that God has prepared in John chapter 6 finds this, the meal of wisdom in, in Proverbs 9 it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Great house, room for all. In John chapter 6, we, we see that wisdom has prepared a feast and it's been laid out. And then in verse 3, we see that wisdom sends out her maidens. She sends out missionaries. And just before I get to that, I, I first want to make a, just a, a little comment about what that house is built on, what its foundation is. What do you think its foundation is? In verse 10 of Proverbs 9, we read this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, for many of you here today, and as well as myself, I'm sure you would say that subjectively, as well as objectively, you know that God is the deliverer of his people, past, present, and future. He has acted in history, in the scriptures, and he's acted in your history and mine. And you would say, I understand that God, the knowledge of God, is the beginning. It's the foundation of this house of wisdom. I just want to say that at the beginning here as we look at this to help make sense of some of the references to the Lord a little further on. Now, some of you may have come here today, and you, you may be uncertain about this. Is there a house of wisdom? Is there wisdom to be found not only in the Bible but in the world around us? And I just wanted to share for a moment a couple of things. You know, I have an interest in science. I'm no scientist. I don't know about you. Any of you here interested in science? I'm not going to have a long science lecture here this morning. No, no, no. You would do me in if I did that. But just a couple of things I've taken of note. And there's, you know, I, I, I'm kind of one of those, what you might call an a amateur scientist or observer. Uh, I have a little telescope and so on. And from both cosmology as well as under the microscope, I see evidence of wisdom there. And as far as the microscope is concerned, I have a little quote here from an article in a magazine called Acts and Facts. And this magazine is written by people who believe there is evidence for design in the structures of life. And the person writing here, Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins, he says this, a recent press release from a prominent European research group started off with this amazing proclamation. A new study from Karolinska Institute shows that the grammar of the human genetic code is more complex than that of even the most intricately constructed spoken languages in the world. That's coming from a secular 
Evolutionary Institute. I go, wow. I think there's evidence for wisdom in the natural world around us. You know? In cosmology, you may have heard of Einstein. And Einstein's a brilliant guy. He was a brilliant guy. I don't even approach that brilliance. Some of you here, undoubtedly. Many of us don't, but some may. And uh, hearing about Einstein, you know, from his actual equations, mathematical equations in physics, he determined that the universe was expanding. I, I can't imagine the brain power to do that from nothing. He did that. But then he did what he called the greatest mistake of his life. He said, my worldview teaches, this was his worldview, that the universe is static, it can't be expanding, it's always been here, it's the creator, everything comes out of this universe, there's nothing else. That was his worldview. So he added what he called the cosmological constant, which made all the planets not expanding, but kind of stuck in amber, as it were. A couple of years later, a fellow by the name of Hubble says, hey, Einstein, come to my telescope in Palomar. And there's an actual picture of Einstein coming out of Palomar with all the scientists and the, and the reporters hurrying along. He says, I made a mistake. And don't ask me, he saw the red ship. What is that? He saw the red shift in the stars and he said, the universe is expanding. There's a point in time where this universe had a beginning. I can't believe it. I'm adding a little there. You know, modern cosmology has come to a point where it says, in the beginning, there was a time where there was neither time can't say there was a time when there was no time. Before time, there was a point where there was not time or matter. There was a point before all of that existed. And they basically, modern cosmology says, in the beginning, and they'll put an uncaused, a, a, a cause we don't understand, your creation, in the beginning, blank, created the heavens and the earth. It appeared suddenly. That's where modern cosmology is. Is there wisdom in the natural world around us? Now, I don't share this to make anyone angry, but just to say this, that if you come here this morning and you're wondering, is there wisdom? Is there a foundation for life? Is there a key to life to live by? You've come to a good place. And is that foundation, now those things I've just stated don't, don't speak as clearly as scriptures, obviously, that God has acted as the deliverer of his people throughout history. But I'm just saying those things to say that if you're seeking wisdom, you've come to a good place this morning in this week, in the coming weeks. That wisdom, its foundation is in the knowledge of the Lord and that he has built a great house and is building a great house. And so let's continue from there. Wisdom's house. In verse 3, we see that wisdom sends out her missionaries. In verse 3, we read, she has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest part points, highest places of the city. She has a message that must go out. And she sends out her maidens. I was thinking, guys, does that mean we had to put on little wings, you know, and pink suits? No, it's a metaphor. I was thinking about that, you know, if I said that, I might get in a little trouble. I better not say that. You see, wisdom doesn't hide her light under a bushel. She cries out from the heights. Is there a need for wisdom in our world today? Is there a need for God's wisdom? You know, I was listening to a CBC interview recently and there was a man sharing, I think it was uh, Writers and Company that I was listening to and he was being interviewed, kind of asking some questions one after another to get, kind of get to know him a little bit. And one of the questions was, are, what makes you happy? 
what makes you happy? And uh, I'm listening to this. And he says, what makes me happy is a day where I've, I've done some writing. I go and do some exercise. Oh, that, that makes me happy. Doesn't that make you happy? I go and do some exercise. And then maybe I spend some time. Some, I socialize with my family and uh, my wife, my 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 children, my grandchildren, and as I'm listening to this, I think, what a wonderful testimony of a balanced life. I really, really like this. This is a good testimony. This is wise. This is wisdom. I'm glad to hear this. Isn't that a good, that's a balanced life. And then as I'm listening, the next question right after is, what terrifies you? And the man profoundly answers, he says, and so bluntly and so honestly and so gently he answers the inevitability of death and losing everything. And you know, I think there's a need for wisdom to cry out whose foundation is knowing God that we would never be alone, never be separated from him, not only for the bad people like me out there, but for the good people too, for my neighbors. Is there a need if we've come into the house of wisdom, God's house, is there a need for that to go outside passionately, that is there a need for others to hear the good news, that it is possible not only to know wisdom, but to be able to live wisely. Praise the Lord. Then we see the invitation in verse 4 through 6. Very interesting here. It says, whoever is simple... And simple here are the uncommitted, those who just simply don't know whether wisdom is true or whether the other house is true. And they're just kind of walking along, minding their own business. But these two great houses are going to call out to them. And wisdom is calling out, whoever is simple, whoever is uncommitted, whoever doesn't know one way or the other. They're kind of at a crossroads, decisions, decisions, decisions. And they're kind of looking at two roads and they're scratching their head, which way should I go? She cries out to this noble lady, whoever is simple, and those who are emissaries. And again, the metaphor, go back past the metaphor, men and women who have come into the house of wisdom, whose foundation is the knowledge of the Lord. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. There's a vast house, the house of God. It's ready for you. Come in, come in. There's room for all. The house has been built. The meal has been paid for. You see it, the New Testament, again, the fulfillment that God has the builder of the house and that Christ has paid the debt, the people who were invited, the people who willingly come, the debt has been paid, they may come in clean and new and guests of wisdom house. And then it says, as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, come, eat of my bread. The person who lacks understanding, it speaks of somebody who's spiritually just clueless, doesn't know, doesn't understand, doesn't yet know that God is the foundation of wisdom. This person's kind of like somebody who's putting together a puzzle and missing some of the pieces. You ever put together a puzzle and missing a few pieces? Oh, that's frustrating, isn't it? Is it important to have the whole truth if you're going to base an assumption or a judgment upon something? Is it important to have all of the information you need to have right understanding to know how to walk this way or that way? Is that important to have understanding? There's a story I heard once of a man who was riding on a country road with his donkey. He was riding on his donkey with his dog. Oh, my wife's smiling. She knows where I'm going with this one. She's heard this story too. Anyway, 
He's riding on his donkey with his dog, and a vehicle comes around a, a sharp hairpin corner way too fast, a guy in a truck, and he hits the donkey. And the donkey and the man fly into the ditch, and the dog flies into the ditch. And there you have it. And then, and then a few weeks later, you see the courtroom scene, and the man is there to, make, to get things straightened out, get things made right. And the defendant, the guy in the truck, he's there. And the lawyer for the defendant speaks to the man who was thrown into the ditch with his donkey and his dog. And he says, I want you to just answer yes or no. Just yes or no. At the scene of the accident, did you or did you not say, I am perfectly fine? And the man, he answers, he says, you see, I was going down this road on my donkey and uh, with, my, with my dog. And the, defendant, the, the lawyer says, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. I just want to hear yes or no to the question. Yes or no to the question. At the scene of the accident, did you, say, did you or did you not say, I am perfectly fine? Just answer that question, please. And the man, again, he speaks and he starts this story. And the, the, defendant, or the lawyer now, he's really frustrated. He says, stop, stop, stop. But the judge, he says, wait, wait a minute. The man's obviously trying to say something. Let him speak. Well, now he's allowed to speak. So he starts off the story again. I was riding on my donkey this beautiful day in a quiet country road with my dog at my side and the vehicle, this vehicle. And that man driving the vehicle, and he points right to the man. He says, that man driving the vehicle came around a sharp corner, hit my donkey, and I flew into the ditch with the donkey and the, and the dog. And uh, the man gets out of his truck and he sees that my donkey is severely injured. My dog has a broken leg. And he, gets, he runs back into his truck, gets his gun, and he comes and he shoots my donkey and he shoots my dog. And then he says to me, how are you feeling? <laughs> what would you answer? You see how getting the whole picture helps you to have understanding. Isn't it? Truth matters. Truth matters. Wisdom matters. Knowing its foundation matters. I want those puzzle pieces to fall into place. You see, wisdom is merciful as she calls out to those who are uncommitted, those who don't have a clue. She's saying, let me fill in the pieces. Let me fill in the blanks. Let me show you the key to this life. And then she calls that person, the recipients, the simple those who lack understanding, she calls them to action. She says, take, eat, and drink. Kind of sounds like communion. You almost see a metaphor here for that beautiful table that's been prepared without any cost to us, fully, fully prepared, costing Jesus Christ everything on the cross. His blood being shed, his body being broken, his soul being made an offering for sin so that we might enter into a meal in which we are satisfied and complete and made by God's grace, live by. She invites to commitment. She invites, it's a metaphor for commitment here, to take and eat and drink, to come into union with wisdom's house. Not simply to look or smell or taste only, but to take and eat. That's commitment, isn't it? You know, I've never seen a feast yet that I didn't like. That's supposed to be funny. Have you ever seen a feast that you didn't like? Oh, Christmas dinner on the farm. Oh, everything was there. 
that was a time when I could eat anything. Those times are gone now. I've never been to a feast such as that where I smelled. I, you know, I smell, but just smell. Just look. Kind of taste. And go, what would that say to my, my mom or my, my wife if I kind of spit the food out at the feast? You've rejected it. Don't do that. What do you do? You, you tuck in. You prepare to sit a while. And you have complete physical satiation, as it were, and the social atmosphere, all of those things, a picture for the completeness that we have in God's house. Verse 6 is a call to repentance and commitment. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. This is a pivotal verse. To forsake foolishness, again, it speaks of repentance, to turn from that which is not true, that which ends in desolation, to turn from foolishness, that which is harmful to the soul, self-will, self the flesh, to turn from that and to live and to go in the way of understanding. Aren't you glad it's not simply enter the house and that's it, but it's a way of understanding. It's a way of life to be lived and the grace of God to live that life in the house of wisdom, to walk in that wisdom by God's grace and power. We'll talk a little bit more about that perhaps later. It's a new beginning, a new way of living, to go in the way of understanding. It's a life of wisdom. It is eternal life. We know that eternal life doesn't begin sometime out there. It begins the moment we come to Christ. For Christ defines eternal life in John as knowing the Father and the one whom he sent. If you know the Father through the Son today, you have eternal life. You've entered the house of wisdom. Then we see in sharp contrast the deceitful house in verse 13 through 18. Folly here is personified as a disgraceful woman in direct contrast to wisdom personified as a high and noble lady. Now, folly defined, to live for the flesh, flesh is satisfaction, to think there's no consequence. The New Testament defines the flesh as self-will, lust, greed, pride, which covers just about anything you can think of that destroys our relationships with one another and with the Lord. Stay away from that, forsake foolishness. But here... Folly actually cries out. She's heedless of consequence, even denying consequence for both now and what is to come. To use a noun to help des- to describe the verb here, folly, in Psalm 31, 1a, the Bible tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, there's no authority but me, or in some relationship to the people around me, but God is not my authority. We certainly see, in, just by way of a little application, we see in society today, You know, the Bible says, God has said he made them in the beginning, male and female. That's a great truth, a truth filled with promise. But everywhere I turn in my Canadian culture, I weep for my country as it denies that truth. The Bible also says, thou shalt not kill. The weakest members of our society are precious. Again, I see an authority greater than simply the wisdom that is present here on earth. So folly cries out call her the deceitful house. I thought about the despicable house, but kept thinking of despicable me, and I thought, no, I can't do that. The deceitful house, verse 13 through 18, she sits in authority and judgment. You see the Lord Jesus sitting in authority when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. She sits in a place of authority and judgment, which isn't really a bad thing until you read what follows here, that she knows nothing. 
She doesn't know God. She's speaking as though there are no consequence. Authority and power are a dangerous thing in someone who does not fear an authority greater than themselves, particularly the Lord. She too calls to the uncommitted and spiritually clueless with the same commitment as wisdom. Her message is simple. It's stolen water is sweet, likely a metaphor for sex outside of marriage, but it can be so much more any temptation. Red eight and darkness is pleasant. She teaches that there's pleasure in sin for a season, which is a half-truth, isn't it? But we know that the wages of sin is death. And of course, that's the conclusion of her house. Her meal is bread and water and leads to death. While wisdom's meal is, meal is wine and meat and leads to life. Quite a comparison. Which would you rather have, bread and water or meat and wine? The rich meal that is eternal life or the meal that is so tempting. You know, temptation can be so tempting, can it? If I just, do I, I know what, of what I speak here. Just take that. It'll cover your pain. Just take that and you'll feel better. Drugs, alcohol, illicit pleasures, whatever it might be. And the old devil in, in the flesh in our heart cries out pride, greed, lust. It can be so tempting. God, pray for grace in the presence of your community of faith to live wisely and to have help to live wisely. I want desire, I trust your desires to forsake the house of foolishness. Or if you're in that house and you hear wisdom calling, to leave folly and come to wisdom. So finally there comes a decision to make, verse 10 through 12. Verse 10 through 12. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. <clears throat> if you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. And just the first verse there, verse 10, we've talked about it a little already. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord speaks of being in a relationship with God. It speaks of believing God's word, that he is the deliverer of his people, past, present, and future, that he is the very foundation of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then it says the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The no word knowledge there speaks of knowing. It speaks of being in relationship with, in commitment with. Again, that meal, not just tasting or looking at, but taking in fully. Or also in the Bible, it that word to know God also is used of a husband and wife knowing one another intimately, being known by and knowing the other person. And there's a point of commitment, a point of beginning. You know, for my wife and I, there's a point where we said, I do to each other, where there was an opening up of concourse with one another, of, of intimacy and intimate union of mind, body, and soul. And so the Bible speaks of coming into the, a right relationship with God with intimate knowledge. And then verse 11, verse 11 says, For by me your days, this is very practical, for by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. You know, last summer we were visiting St. John's, Newfoundland. And uh, the, the roads are just going everywhere in Newfoundland. And Carla, my wife, acted as navigator with Google Maps. And a wise man listens to his wife a foolish man dies. You're not going to forget that, are you? 
Many years of life are added to you. Mine, I think, were shortened just a little bit. I'm not the greatest direction listener to. Oh, it was madness in Newfoundland, in St. John's. They're very practical. It has spiritual and long-range implication as well. Verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Now, this doesn't mean that choosing wisdom or scoffing at God doesn't have consequence for the people around us, but it speaks to us personally having a consequence to the wonderful free choice that God has given us. The the wisdom of the meal that's been laid out, fully laid out. What is that meal? To go from metaphor to, again, the reality of Old and New Testament, the sacrifices that were made so that atonement could be put on God's highest creature, man, that he might be made clean in God's sight. In the New Testament, just very briefly, we read in Corinthians that Jesus, that he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the meal that was purchased at great price for you and for me. doesn't matter nationality, how smart or not so smart you might be, but to hear that message and respond to it. The Bible says in the New Testament, entering in again to that house of wisdom, Jesus said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the child of God, sons and daughters, receiving that meal, coming to Christ. And this morning I would ask some of you as Christians, you may be struggling with besetting sin and the power to forsake foolishness. I think it's so wonderful that you come faithfully to church. That's important. I believe in that very much. To sit under the ministry of the word and to allow God to minister that to you and by his grace change you and mold you into the image of Christ, into the image of that wise person in the community of faith in the Old Testament. And we have to help one another, don't we? I love reading about small groups. I read about small groups in the bulletin. Just practically, again, speaking, being in a group Maybe if, as a man with another man, a couple of men, being able to confess my sin and my struggles with them, to be able to encourage them and pray for them and read the word together and grow together, that to realize that someone has said the Christian life is very hard. We're not meant to do it alone. We're meant to do it in community together. And I believe, I know that's the tenor of this church. I hope I'm not meddling. Oh, oh good. Whew. I would never say if you desire to forsake something in your life, just, just go do it. You need to seek God's grace. Lord, help me with this. I want to do business with you today. I want to forsake this thing. And I want to reach out and have help from my pastors and from the small group ministry that's here to have prayer and Bible study, accountability, encouragement, friendship, and joy. What a wonderful truth. And it may be also you're here today and you're saying, which house am I really in? Am I in the house of wisdom, the house that God has built? Or am I not in that house? That's really the two choices. Which house are you in? I want to close with this illustration. When we were in St. John's, we went to the Basilica of St. John the Baptist, this huge cathedral. I mean, gold and oh, everywhere. You would maybe love it, maybe not, but... I would recommend you go if you, if you have a chance to go to St. John's. It was in there, and there were burdens on my heart when I went in there. Maybe there's some burdens on your heart today. And I went in there, and I looked 
at some of the pieces of art, the artwork that was all around the cathedral. And I walked from one to the next to the next. My wife wasn't with me. I've never told her about this. So she's hearing it for the first time now. As I walked around and looked at that art, it was of the passion of Jesus Christ. And I looked, and first I saw him at the Lord's table. And scripture comes to mind that he knows what's coming, yet he's being strong and teaching his disciples and loving them. Even knowing he's about to give himself selflessly for them. He's, he's giving all for them, even as he knows the agony that's coming. And I'm looking at that picture, and I think, he did this for me. And I start to weep. And I go around, and I, men, is it okay I say that? I, I can get emotional. I try not to do that today. I go to the next picture, and it shows Judas betraying Jesus. Actually, before that picture, Jesus in the garden. And there are the disciples sleeping. And I'm kind of identifying with them a little bit at that moment. But recognizing Jesus' love for them, nevertheless, even as they are in that moment, failing him. And they're praying, he's praying, and they're sleeping. And I think, Jesus selflessly did this for me. How about for you? For you. And then you see Judas come with a horde of soldiers and the expressions and the faces were just so powerful, so right. Somebody with love made these artistic expressions. And there is Jesus, willingly, boldly, confessing himself to be Jesus the Christ and being taken. And the next picture, he's being beaten at the trial and the crown of thorns being put on his head. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, he did this for me. And that glimpse of Peter and Jesus seeing each other as he's at trial. And Jesus selflessly still loving Peter even as he's about to deny Jesus. Jesus did this for me. He died for me. He died for you. And then going further, coming to the cross and the nails through the hands and the feet. This is how the house was made, dear ones. And I'm looking and he said, he did this for me. This is my house. He did this for you. Is this your house? Have you come to him? This is the wisdom of God, that he would selflessly give himself for you and me, that we might live wisely in a community of faith and for his purpose in these days. Would you come to him this morning, if you haven't already? Lord, I accept what you have done on my behalf. I didn't see it, but I know it to be so. And in my mind's eye, I could see it. His resurrection and his ascension, spirit coming down, filling his people, and the witnesses going out to the uttermost parts of the earth, which includes Kamloops here this morning. And that word powerfully touching hearts and changing lives and bringing people into a place of union with God. You see the scariest words in all the scriptures. I read them already. It says, if you scoff, you will bear it alone. God doesn't want us to be alone, folks. He doesn't want us to be alone. In the Old Testament, he says to the people that he would deliver, he said, I will be with you again and again. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Come with me. Come with me. I'll be with you. In the New Testament, the same language. I'll be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. But it goes further. It says, I'll be in you. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we pray you would bless it to hearts today. Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to come to that house of wisdom, to what you have done, the house that you have built, Lord, you would touch their hearts today and bring them into a right relationship with yourself. And Lord, if there's besetting sin, we pray for power by grace to overcome it. In Jesus' name, amen.